The loneliness one dare not sound and would as soon surmise, as in its grave go plumbing to ascertain the size. The loneliness whose worst alarm is lest itself should see and perish from before itself for just a scrutiny. The horror not to be surveyed, but skirted in the dark, with consciousness suspended and being under lock. I fear me this is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors, illuminate or seal. Hello and welcome to Loneliness and You, the podcast in which we hope to illuminate rather than seal the experience of loneliness and the question of whether it is indeed the maker of the soul. I'm your host, Axel Seaman. In each episode, I have a conversation with someone who has something to say about loneliness, from an academic, artistic, or indeed any other perspective. My guest today is Fred Cooper. Fred, could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, it's really good to be here. Uh, I'm Fred Cooper. I'm a historian of medicine, um, and I work at the Wellcome Centre for Talks of Environments of Health at the University of Exeter. Um, my main interests uh, are in loneliness and shame, but probably I like loneliness a little bit more. <laughs> but um, I'm really interested, I guess, in how the idea of loneliness that we work from today has been built over sometimes like hundreds of years, like what, what does the word mean? Where does it come from? And where are all of those different tests that it carries? Uh, how, how are those related to it? Um, both in kind of medical settings, but also cultural, um, political, all kinds of different um, states like that as well. Okay, wonderful. So this is going to give us a new perspective because, you know, so far we've mainly been talking to philosophers and psychologists. And so we haven't really, you know, delved into the historical um, roots of loneliness or perhaps the concept of loneliness. And it's great that we're able to do that today. Before we do that, um, let's look at, you know, sort of a bit of a historical take on loneliness or rather, you know, take on loneliness from um, a while ago, Emily Dickinson's poem, which we heard at the beginning of this podcast. Um, I'm just going to ask you, as I ask all my guests, what does the poem do to you or for you or with you? Does it do anything? Um, what are your thoughts, if any? Let us know. Let's start that way. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I guess my kind of reaction with, to it um, is, is the first time I've read it was in some ways quite mixed. So there are, there are parts of it that seem to speak really clearly and interestingly to things that I've thought about in relation to loneliness and how it works and, and what the experience of loneliness is or can be. But there were some parts of it, and, and in all fairness, I'm no uh, literary scholar, but there were parts of it that I just didn't understand at all. So I'm kind of quite interested, I think, knowing what I do about Emily Dickinson and her life and, and how she lived and, and, and worked. I'm interested in whether some of the distance I feel between some of the things she's saying is a matter of the kind of big temporal distance between us in terms of how long ago she was writing. But also, I guess, in some of the distance that Dickinson at times felt with the world herself in her own time. And there's also something there I'm really interested in about the kind of almost the un the unknowability of other people's experiences right that that almost kind of baked into this this poem there's something there that that doesn't quite connect 
And I think if we're we're kind of encouraged to think of, of writing in all its forms as an attempt to connect, then how we think of Dickinson with her, you know, I, I think like well over a thousand poems, only a few of which were published while she was still alive, um, is, is a really, really interesting question. <laughs> yeah. So um I'm intrigued, you know, by um what you don't understand about about the poem. And and it, um, I'll tell you why. It's because, you know, one of my reasons for selecting this poem is because when I first came across it, I didn't get it at all. Um I really was bemused by it and 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 puzzled by it and and also you know like like you say sort of put at a at a distance somehow and um yeah i selected it because i i wanted to see you know what what other people um do do with it and had you know had you put this poem before me and sort of edited out the word loneliness every time she uses it and asked me you know what's the blank i would not have guessed that you know she was talking about loneliness right um so so what is it you know do you want to talk a little bit about more like what what uh, about that what mystifies you about the poem what what strikes you as so strange um well can i um if, if you don't can i tell you what i did understand or what i can <laughs> what i could make from some of it and i think really um it's it's quite a clean split um in terms of the first the first half i really just can't get my head around what's going on or what uh, she's trying to say. I mean, the loneliness one day, not sound, um, I think, is quite nice and kind of um, uh, it speaks to this this idea of like almost being kind of afraid to name it um, and it being this kind of this this thing of such horror that it that it's really really difficult to um, uh, to articulate, which I think is really interesting because it's something that is something that is kind of repeated in some of the the mid 20th century work on loneliness like um harry harry stack sullivan for example talks about it as something that um you can only really understand through um the things it causes or through the things that people do to avoid it and kind of like it's almost like looking at the sun right it's it's sort of too overwhelming to do and i think that kind of in, that's sort of reproduced in that third um, that third stanza um skirted in the dark um is, is a nice way of putting it. And I, I guess I think the kind of the, the second lines of that bit and the final part, um, to me, are kind of speaking to loneliness as how it changes and alters the self, um, but also the kind of feeling of the self in the world. Um, so kind of consciousness suspended and being unlocked. Um, I, I mean, I'm kind of looking at a paper version and I see that being is with a big B, uh, a capital B. So it's kind of being in that more uh, kind of, I suppose, sort of existential sense is is to me really interesting. Like because I I think of testimonies from people who who feel lonely and who have kind of talked about feeling almost as if their whole life has been interrupted, that the like usual temporal flow is suspended. Um, so I found that really really interesting. Um, but there's something there as well in that final part. Is loneliness the maker of the soul? Its caverns and its corridors illuminate or seal? Because I think of obviously Dickinson is like this incredibly solitary figure in a lot of ways, um, which is probably true to an extent um, across her life and becomes much, much truer later on. But of course, it's also this sort of profoundly creative one. So the idea of loneliness kind of illuminating. Um, or being something that's in some way expansive and, and that kind of could be a context, uh, if not necessarily a cause of creativity is really interesting. 
But so then is that kind of idea of loneliness ceiling, a bit closing things off. So there's there's kind of a lot there, but really, yes, first, the first eight lines, I really, really struggle to understand what she's trying to get at. Um, to me, that's that's also coming coming back again to to her poems and and what and who they were for, which I guess is quite an unanswered question, because I mean, is this is this a matter of her own private language? I don't know. Is this something that she's writing for herself and to herself? It's it's never really clear what her audience is, how, how much these can be understood as a kind of communication. Um, because, I mean, this one, I don't think, did, actually, you, you might know, did this one, was, this wasn't one of the very rare ones that saw Light of Day before she no, it wasn't. But then at the same time, I think she, she left really explicit instructions that her correspondences be destroyed, but said nothing about her poems, which in a way is kind of an interesting thing. And maybe, of course, as a, as, as, as a woman sort of so profoundly preoccupied with death is a kind of a, there's, I think there's something interesting there in terms of how she might think of the afterlife. So maybe it is kind of a form of delayed communication, maybe? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't have the answer to, to these questions either. <laughs> Um, it, it, so you're right that this this wasn't you know one of the few um, published poems. That's right. Also, as far as I recall, um, you know she wanted her correspondence to be um, destroyed, and and then you know people didn't really know like you know what to do with you know these minute sort of um, texts. And you know sometimes when 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 I read this and other poems, you know you, you get the sense that well she's just talking to herself, but then. Would you really just write for 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 yourself? Is she is she just talking to an audience that's that's not de described and you know lives in her imagination, right? Um, I I think you know these are these are incredibly you know difficult questions, intriguing ones. I wanted to hear a little bit more about. So you said at some stage just now that you know loneliness for her in this poem, and I think that's right. You know, has it's deeply scary. You know, it's 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 deathly, but it's also illuminating clearly. So you know, there's this this creative element that it has, and so it's not all bad. And um, I wanted to have for a long time, you know, wanted to talk to a historian um about this, because from the little bit that you know I've I've read, um, I've gathered, but that may not be correct that. Our understanding of loneliness that, you know, certainly, you know, is in play in, in, in much psychological work um, at the moment as a condition that even if it isn't a pathology is one that, you know, ought to be addressed and avoided. And from, from the little things, the bit that I've, I've read, I, I've, I've, I think I've gathered that earlier generations understanding of loneliness was much more diffuse than that and sort of more closely connected to what today perhaps we might call solitude, so a positively connoted way of being alone. Am I right in thinking that? Uh, yeah, I think, I think you are. Um, I should say that I'm, I'm much more of a kind of a modern historian, so some of the absolutely brilliant work done by, by colleagues on this um, is something I would very much say that people should go and, and look for, because it's, it's, it's much richer um, than kind of, I think, what I can tell you. But um, yes, I think I think there is a sense, um, not not least in how um, the word loneliness or lonely is is kind of quite frequently used when you go back quite a lot further in much more ambiguous ways. And I think this is something that's really of interest to me because I mean we can talk about 
loneliness as something that you can kind of understand as an experience that people have had as long as there have been people in, in some ways, but also the ways that we use that word and the meaning it has does change over time. And I think that that also does structure how we experience these things too. But it's it's interesting because I, I think that the, the meanings that we attach to loneliness now, which are completely fraught with, uh, you know, danger or risk, are in some ways a product of loneliness being increasingly attached to different medical or kind of like medical adjacent problems. So um, in the kind of, um, I suppose, the period of time that in some ways I'm the most comfortable in, uh, so kind of the mid 20th century, loneliness is, is put into uh, proximity with suicide in lots of really interesting ways. And in some ways seen as like a kind of, it's the next temporal step um, with loneliness being this kind of like, uh, this route to suicide. I mean, you have kind of like prominent psychiatrists in, in the mid 20th century saying that like all suicides are lonely acts and things like that. And so you, you have suicide there as this way of raising the stakes, which I think works back and colours loneliness in really interesting ways. But then also as, um, you know, the, the 20th century goes on, um, suicide is far more linked to depression. And the stakes on loneliness then become raised in interesting ways with proximity to uh, problems of physical health. So, um, you know, that kind of, that, that sort of much repeated and I think not necessarily very well understood point that loneliness is as bad for you as smoking however many cigarettes a day is to me like a really, really interesting one because then it kind of implicates loneliness in, in all of this stuff around physical and relational health. The kind of the logical endpoint of this stuff can't help but position it as bad when in fact, um, yeah, historically speaking, there's so much more um, interesting and I guess, kind of like fertile convergence between loneliness and solitude, um, as we might think of it now. Mm. Do you have, so, you know, perhaps this is not really what you study, but uh, an interesting question to me is, how does that come to be that there is at some stage in the 20th century, this this, this sudden link between thinking about loneliness and thinking about suicide, um, where earlier it, it wasn't like that? Like, how does that happen? How did that happen? Um, well, I think it's it's always there to an it's there to an extent in the formal study of suicide in, in terms of some of those kind of earlier, like turn of the century sociological texts that are trying to get to grips with it. But I think there's something about um, maybe like the post-war moment where there are kind of like, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a suicidologist or, a, or really a historian of suicide, but my, my understanding is that very, very few people are killing themselves in the Second World War. And then there's this kind of like, it, it becomes much more, uh, it, it either rises or it becomes much more uh, noticed in the kind of post-war years. So there's this like explosion of work around it. And I think that there's something in terms of uh, loneliness being like a kind of a parallel anxiety and the two just kind of increasingly get pushed together. And it's not, it's not that it's unconvincing. Um, necessarily, it's just there is an observable process of attachment between the two ideas there, which in part, I think, relies on people increasingly trying to separate loneliness out from um, other difficult emotions or um, other kind of psychiatric diagnoses, for example. I mean, it's always, um, it's to me always, always really interesting when you kind of go back to these, these mid-century thinkers and they're much less 
interested or maybe much less sure about disentangling things like loneliness and social anxiety or loneliness and shame or kind of uh, loneliness and depression. And then they're kind of saying, well, maybe we call things different names at different times for a particular set of reasons that might not actually have too much to do with with the way that people feel. Yeah, interesting. Whereas today, you know, I so I know more about the, the philosophical literature on this, and um, as my colleagues and I, you know, try to try to think about loneliness philosophically, there there is a big desire. You know, we're at pains to work out what it is that makes you know the concept loneliness distinct you know from depression in particular various kinds of depression right um and you know it's it's not easy to to draw the line like you know because because you might say that well suppose these are really different things then nevertheless you know very frequently they co-occur right so you can't you know easily sort of state conditions under which one occurs and then the other doesn't because, you know, the, the two very often show up together. And, and then sometimes, you know, in, in bleaker moments, I, I think that, well, actually, you know, maybe what we are painstakingly trying to do here isn't actually that important. You know, does it really matter, you know, whether it's depression or whether it's loneliness and whether the two are distinct? Do you have any views on that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think it I think it matters a lot. And I think it I think it matters precisely because like well what we decide that something is is always going to be in some ways like a kind of a, like a social and political as well as an individual negotiation. But what we decide something is is like the core the core point, right? It gives you the blueprint, it tells you what to do next. Um and sometimes that can be a bad thing, and I think that the, the slippage between, say, for example, loneliness and depression is like quite a big one. And sometimes it feels as though if if there is like a kind of a, a misdiagnosis or a misunderstanding of what's happening, then that can lead to solutions which aren't solutions. So much more conceptual clarity, I think, is incredibly useful, and it, it lets us understand what the problem really is. I think so. Yeah, sorry, I don't quite, quite, quite know how to end that. Yeah. No, 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 that's, that's, that's great. I mean, I'm intrigued by that you did just, just said what we decide that something is. So um, that, that suggests that, you know, the, the view that you have about how we come to name certain conditions, mental conditions, as what we identify them as, isn't like picking out natural kinds, say. Um, so it, it suggests that you've got more, you know, something in mind that's a, perhaps a bit more like a hermeneutical process where, you know, it's it's not that here's the world and it's got this stuff in it and then we have got these concepts and if we do our job really well, then, you know, we've got for each thing that there is, you know, it's a mental thing or a physical thing, then we've got a concept for it, but rather as you name these things, then you also partly define them, not identify, but define them as what they are. And so you make them what they are. Is that is that sort of the picture that you've got? I think to a considerable degree, yeah. Um, I, I had a really good conversation with someone at the um, UCL Loneliness Network. Uh, they, they have a, a lived experience group. I'm, I'm really sorry, unfortunately, I can't remember his name. Um, but he, he said something that was uh, really resonated with me. So what he said was, um, 
I mostly don't know how I feel. I just feel like shit, which actually kind of I resonated with me quite a lot, both in terms of like my own personal experiences of uh, sometimes feeling like shit, um, but also like I mean we're not necessarily all. Um, and I, I don't mean this in a, a dismissive way at all, um, but we're not all Emily Dickinson's with this like vast inner life that we're able to absolutely kind of um, wonderfully point out and puncture exactly what's going on. Right? Like most, mostly, mostly we feel bad and then we decide to frame it in a certain way or we, we make connections between that kind of bad feeling and the things that we think of as being like lacking or wrong in our life. And sometimes they have like really observable differences. I mean, you know, stress is it's very rare to confuse loneliness and stress, um, I think, because of the ways they do different things to the body, uh, the mind. But actually, in a lot of cases, things are a lot more muddy. And I, it's very, very interesting when you look at, say, um, diagnostic scales for depression and diagnostic scales for loneliness, because there's so much overlap. And I kind of wonder whether you could go into a, a doctor's a surgery and have almost identical conversations and leave with, um, you know, a, a social prescription for, you know, something to do with uh, getting out there and meeting new people, or you could, you could leave a pharmaceutical prescription um, and probably actually give really similar answers to a whole lot of questions but maybe with one or two crucial differences. And I think that's that's really interesting to me. I mean, I'm not kind of one of those people who thinks that there's lots of misdiagnosis going on necessarily, or that there's kind of, that this is like a big problem, but it is definitely conceptually really interesting. And it does call for, I think, exactly the kind of clarity that you're, you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, spinning, spinning that a little bit further, then, you know, when naming something as something like loneliness you know partly makes it the thing that it is and then you know that thing is out in the open so you know um the the psychologist uh Jana McHugh Power who, who was here you know two episodes ago and uh, she said you know one of the great things about you know what's happening now on the loneliness front is that finally we're able to talk about it it's you know it, it and things lose their shame right when mm -hmm. they're when you know you talk about them and and then you realize that my god lots of people have that and it's just not me right um but then you know if there's this this sort of naming you know and this decision element to 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 making loneliness what it is so what does that tell us you know about us that you know now and you know um for a while now but now you know we are so interested in loneliness and you know hundred years ago, I don't know, we would have been, you know, into hysteria or something, right? And um, do, you have, do you have any views on that? It's an absolutely huge question. And I, I think it's, I think it's present to an extent in, um, in some of the work that I do in terms of thinking about how loneliness is posed as being like a particular crisis or epidemic, when in fact, there's not much good evidence to suggest that it's actually increasing, for example. But that it's probably just been like actually quite high for a very, very long time. And so you then have different points in history where loneliness is represented as being like of particular urgency and particularly linked to uh, modernity or the present moment in, in, in a particular way. And yeah, I think that it really is more about when we decide to notice something 
and I don't mean we as in kind of you or me so much as in this type of these big social cultural terms. Um, so in the 1950s, um, there's so much panic about loneliness. Uh, lots of really, really interesting stuff that is, you know, the, one person describes it as the modern killing disease, um, which is which is fascinating. Like the idea that this is something that's come in to um, replace all of the big uh, infectious killers that the welfare state had in, at least, and the NHS had at least in theory kind of like got under control. And there's something like there I think about witnessing and when a society does sometimes bear witness to these kind of undercurrents of suffering and pain. In terms of our own moment, it's, <laughs> it's really hard to say. I think that the way we think about how people's minds work does kind of undergo not quite revolutions. I don't want to be quite so stark about it, but there are points where it's really clear that there is like a, a you know, a, a biological model of, of the brain and, and, and its kind of malfunctions in ascendance. And that's probably been mostly true across the 20th and into the 21st century. But then with like, you know, social models, political models, thinking about poverty and stress and all of these kinds of things, they do ebb and flow. And so I think we definitely can see at the moment there's a sense of um, some of those really super biological explanations actually not getting us so far uh, in terms of understanding like the sheer breadth of, of human suffering and loneliness is quite a big part of that. I also think it, it does seem to, I think, aggregate to an extent around big technological changes. So in some ways, we're still, we're still living at the moment um, kind of forms of um, panic and anxiety about loneliness and social media that are really kind of products of the, you know, 2000s and 2010s in some ways. Um, you know, obviously this kind of vast thing that's massively remodeled social life and the way that people connect to one another also has kind of like fairly clear goods and fairly clear uh, massive pitfalls as well. And so I think it's not so much that that necessarily to me has increased loneliness, but that it, it makes it speakable in a certain type of way and it makes it resonate with people culturally and then that kind of gathers traction. Yeah, yeah, that 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 I, I can see that. I mean, you know, in in my own own field, you know, philosophy and in particular, sort of the more analytical side of philosophy, a, a quite sort of rampant individualism has been true for a long time. Where really, you know, you see the individual as connected to their brain, and you know that then somehow causes consciousness, and that's the base unit you know and then the social sort of only comes in afterwards and you see in the last 20 30 years that people are beginning to you know within even within this analytic strand of philosophy people are beginning to question that that you know um perhaps you know we are social in a much deeper sense in a sort of hegelian sense you know that you know without the social um we are just nothing right mm -hmm. and um, so then you wonder whether you know when when even analytic philosophers you know eventually sort of pick up on that well you know loneliness is is sort of the one psychological condition that's intrinsically social right and so you you then wonder whether this political dimension of, of of loneliness social political dimension isn't isn't terribly important you know in answering the question that that we're discussing where we are just seeing ourselves or you know the sign of the times are that you know people feel just disenfranchised cut off from the social not properly connected powerless 
at the mercy of, you know, whatever charlatans of the day, like never before, is is what I sometimes think, you know, one reason for why loneliness, you know, sort of resonates so much today, but as you say, not only today. Yeah, yeah um, I, I think, I think you're right on a, on a lot of levels. I, I just kind of, I guess it's just so hard to say that we are more, more lonely than we've been in the past. And I'm kind of, so the, the, the sort of 1950s, 1960s to me is so interesting because in part it has this like imaginative function in, um, at, at least in the UK, I'm sure in America as well, uh, and a lot more places, but um, it, it already has this function in terms of nostalgia, right? So people think about the 1950s as like this, this really well-connected time where neighborliness was still intact and and then they're kind of holding it up as as an alternative to this, you know, fragmented individualistic uh, vision of relationships today. And then in the 1950s, they're having like really, really similar conversations about how far society has deteriorated, how everyone's obsession with privacy is making like the world colder, and, and how neighborliness is almost a, a myth. It's 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 gone completely. When you look back to these sort of like sunlit uplands of of I don't know 1910 or something like that, but I also know that people were really worried about loneliness. I mean, in in the early 20th century, so I, I don't know kind of how far it goes back. You know, this kind of perpetual model of we're in a crisis that's deeply rooted in the now, and we're lonelier than we ever have been before, because I just we've been saying it for such a long time. I don't know. I mean, I, I get the feeling from my colleagues in, in who are interested in early modern loneliness that it's more of an isolated, sorry, an isolated thing um, uh, that's more common to certain ways of living and, you know, scholarly or religious pursuits and things like that. So I think something does really change with um, industrialization, if not in terms of the language necessarily, but certainly the experience or the, the spread of the experience. But I, yeah, I, I would love to keep going back to all of these different crises, each, each of which talk about the present and the past in really interesting ways and almost find if there's a point where they stop, where there's no kind of lionization or there's no anxiety about this. But I, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it doesn't, maybe it isn't that. Maybe it just goes back and back. Yeah, this is really fascinating. I mean, I did, you know, I did not know this because you read everywhere that, you know, there's exactly the loneliness epidemic and it's now worse than ever before. And um, so you, you know, one one thinks, you know, that this is a product of, well, you know, I knew it, it was there before COVID, but but not long before that. So it's it's amazing to hear that, you know, in the 1950s, we're already you know, having having that discussion. Um, well, our time is already up, which is amazing. I'm sure. Sorry. <laughs> I have so many more questions. Let's end with one last one, which you don't have to answer at all unless you want to. But I always want to hear. So, you know, loneliness is a weird thing to work on because it is something that you all almost certainly know from your own perspective, um, right? You know, almost everybody, you know, has felt lonely in some way. Um, shape or form in their own life. How does that affect your work? Does it affect your work? I mean, it's not something that you can just sort of take a clinical perspective towards because this is something that you know yourself, right? Does that make a difference? Mm, yeah, it's um, it's a really good question. It's something that I don't think I've fully um, got to grips with myself. 
So I've, I've, I would say loneliness is something that I mostly haven't felt, which is really nice and a really privileged position to be in, I think. I, I have had a little part of my life where I felt um, really intensely um, and quite acutely lonely. So I was uh, doing my PhD, I, I had to care uh, for a family member who was kind of perpetually suicidal um, and then kind of tried to drink themselves to death. Um, and, and that was isolating in so many different ways. But it was probably only looking back on it afterwards that I realised that what I felt was loneliness. Um, again, back to that kind of not having that, um, you know, forensic self-knowledge that's able to pinpoint exactly what's wrong. I just knew I was having a terrible time. And it's interesting because I, I mean, I know lots of people have really different or, or academics who work on loneliness have really different relationships with their own lived experience from people who make it a huge part of everything they do um, to people like me who realize that it probably mostly works in an unconscious way in terms of the things I'm interested in and why I guess I care so deeply or one of the reasons I care so deeply about it. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, there are parts of scholarship that I kind of try and avoid, I guess, because in some ways they're too close to, to my own experiences. Um, and again, we're almost kind of like uh, back to my chosen medium history and the kind of distance that it lets you have. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I think it's very much present in my work, uh, but in ways that are largely unarticulated and um, probably unresolved. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the note, I think, on which we'll have to leave it for today. So thank you very much, Fred. That was hugely insightful. And yeah, I'm looking forward to reading more of your work. That's awesome. Oh, thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you. My guest today was Fred Cooper. He is a historian of medicine and transdisciplinary researcher in the medical humanities and postdoctoral research associate at the University of Exeter in the UK. Thanks for listening to Loneliness and You, a podcast on the research and experience of loneliness.